Hello, and welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. We're, we're in a series on adversity, and one of the flip sides of adversity is that it often gives people the chance to help people that are in adversity. That family where they were living, it was leaking water, it didn't work well for them, and so they have been in adversity for a long time, and our students went down and helped. In the early church, in the ancient world, um, that's what the church did. They, there would be people who were just homeless or starving, and they'd show up at their door, and they'd fast because they were poor too, just so they could feed them, or there were um, plagues that would come, and they'd stay in town and nurse people back to health and sometimes die, whereas people's own families would leave. So you guys followed in that tradition. Way to go. Thank you. About 3,500 years ago, 3,500 years ago, Moses was born. And he was born at the time when arguably you could say perhaps was the most severe or one of the most severe persecutions ever endured by the people of Israel. They were slaves, but at this particular time, every male baby was being thrown into the Nile to die. So you can imagine how that felt. Now, Remember back from last week, many of you weren't here, but Joseph had rescued the entire region. All of Egypt kept him from starving by stockpiling grain, and he was loved. He'd become like a father to one of the pharaohs at least, and he married a prominent Egyptian. He talked like an Egyptian. He walked like an Egyptian. He dressed like an Egyptian. He used the same hygiene and food, which means he actually smelled like an Egyptian. And when his brothers came 20 years after he'd been sold into slavery, they didn't even recognize him. They thought he was Egyptian. But when he brought his extended family of 66 people into Egypt, Pharaoh said, let them settle in Goshen. Goshen? Goshen. Um, That's where they can graze and stuff. They were shepherds, and it just so happens that in that particular culture, the Egyptians despised shepherds. But Joseph was different because he was raised there and looked like an Egyptian. But the two groups stayed mostly apart. Now Joseph dies, a lot of years go by, and there arises a new pharaoh in town who doesn't know Joseph, and the people are now afraid of the Hebrews because they're just multiplying very rapidly, and they're afraid they'll either rebel or they'll join forces with a foreign army. And so oftentimes when you despise another group, it makes it a lot easier to hurt the other group, and they hurt them by enslaving them. And the Israelites are slaves for 400 years. And just when Moses is born, they're forcing all the Hebrews to throw the babies into the Nile where they'll die. But Moses' mother successfully hides him for three months, can't keep it up, and so she puts him in a floating basket into the Nile. And I think this is all strategic. A princess is bathing there, hears the baby or something, sees him, and you know, just goes gaga over the baby which is what babies do. That's our newest grandchild, who will be here next Sunday, by the way. Um, But, you know, everybody loves babies. So, of course, you know, the princess sees the baby, and, oh, it's a baby, and so forth. You know, it's a lot harder to throw the baby to the crocodiles when you actually know the baby. Um, So Moses' sister is watching, and she uh, says, hey, I know a wet nurse you can use, and it's actually Moses' mother, so I don't think the princess was probably fooled by that, but who cares? It's an adorable baby. And uh, Moses is eventually adopted. He's considered Egyptian. He's educated. He's important. But when he's 40, he kind of takes up the cause of a a Hebrew slave who's being treated unfairly, beaten, and, and he ends up killing the Egyptian overseer. 
and burying him in the sand. The next day it becomes apparent everybody knows, so he has to flee because uh, otherwise they're going to come after him. And he goes to another country. He's sitting there by this well, and he ends up defending some women shepherds from some men shepherds. And so the women take him home. Uh, he ends up marrying one, has kids. And he becomes a shepherd, which Egyptians despised. He's literally put out to pasture for the next 40 years. And when he's 80, he sees a burning bush on the mountain. He's a very spry 80-year-old, and he climbs up to see it. Um, God's, he dies when he's 120, so he's pretty spry. So. But the bush doesn't burn up, and God speaks to him through the bush, and he says that he's going to send Moses to liberate his people from slavery in Egypt. Moses doesn't want to go. He makes all kinds of excuses. He is really trying to get out of it, and God just keeps getting rid of his excuses, and finally he says, okay, I'll go. And Moses goes to Egypt, and Pharaoh refuses to let the people go, and there's all this turmoil, and God sends 10 plagues to convince Pharaoh. First, you know, they, they pour water out, and it becomes blood in the Nile, and then they have frog infestation, and gnats, and flies, a bunch of the livestock die. They have boils, these sores, they um, have locusts, they have this deadly hail before the locusts, darkness kind of for almost three days, just this weird darkness. And then finally, last of all, is the Passover. And the firstborn of each household dies, which means that almost every household was filled with horrible grief. The Egyptians are now terrified of the Israelites. We've got to go, let them go or the whole place is going to be destroyed. I mean, the hail has destroyed the crops, the locusts. I mean, it just, they're devastated. And so Pharaoh says, go. And they actually give them all their wealth to go with the Israelites. They despoil uh, Egypt. And experts think that perhaps a million people left in this exodus, in this, in this escape. But God leads them, and he has them go kind of first north, and that the direct route would be north. See, you can see here the red line. The red line is how we think, how many experts think they went. The green line would have been kind of the direct route, but it would have taken them through some powerful people's countries and so forth. And they first started going north, and it made it look to Pharaoh like they didn't know what they were doing because they didn't know what they were doing. They'd been slaves their whole lives. And so the people say, we want our slaves back. And in the ancient world, slavery was, doing without slavery was like you doing without electricity. That's how experts would categorize it. That's, that's how they got things done. It's an awful, horrible institution, but they're going all of a sudden, hey, we don't have any slaves anymore. So Pharaoh sends the army to get them, and their back is up against the Red Sea. There's no way to go. The people start complaining. They say, it would have been better to be a slave than die out here in the desert. Here comes Pharaoh's army. They're panicked. They're yelling at Moses. They're all upset, and God sends this powerful wind. It dries out the Red Sea for them to walk through, and when the, the army of Pharaoh tries to follow them, God releases the water back, and they all drown. So now they, their crops, their livestock, their firstborn, and their army, gone. Just completely wipes out Egypt. So for the next six weeks or so, people like Moses, but then they get hungry. They start grumbling. Oh, it better be a slave than die of hunger in the desert. And uh, So God sends them quail to eat at night, and manna, which is this weird stuff that nobody had ever had that just kind of settles on the ground um, and they eat that, during, gather it, and eat it during the day. But next they become thirsty. They say, oh, it would have been better to stay in Egypt than to die of thirst in the desert. And Moses, God helps him, does a miracle, brings water out of the rock. They come to Mount Sinai, and God descends onto the mount, and there's, 
It's covered in smoke, and there's this long trumpet blast that just doesn't seem to end, and lightning and thunder, and it's shaking, and the people are terrified. And they, they, Moses goes up on the, the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, and they become impatient, and they make a golden calf. They have Aaron make it for them, and they have this wild, drunken party. God's very angry with them. Thousands of them die. As you go through this trip, it's about 10 different times that they grumble and don't trust God and several times that they want to kill Moses. Not fun. And when they finally get close to the, to the promised land, they send, Moses sends 12, see that very top where it says Can, that's Canaan, the beginning of it. Moses sends 12 spies to see what the land is like and they all come back and say, the land is fantastic and Joshua and Caleb say, let's go get it like God told us to and the other 10 say, we can't do it. They'll kill us. We're not powerful enough. And so they undermine the faith of everybody else and the other people, again, they want to stone Moses. They want to elect a new leader or choose a new leader to take them back to Egypt. And God intervenes. And after he intervenes, he condemns the Israelites to wander for 40 years in the wilderness, all that wilderness area that you see, until everybody that was over 20 years old when they left Egypt dies so that a new generation can go in. Moses wrote a number of things. One, there's a psalm that he wrote, Psalm 90. I just want to point out a couple of things that he said in that. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. One of the things about talking about adversity is how you handle adversity is really a question of wisdom. It's, it's not so much what happens to you in life, but how you see what happens to your life, how you perceive it. Everybody has adversity and difficult things. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Does that seem pretty reasonable on most part? Would you, how would you like that for your life? Uh, as many days as I've been healthy, I want to be sick that many days. As many days as I've, I've been employed, I want to be unemployed that many days. As many days as I've been rich, I want to be poor. No, we don't. We expect a lot more, don't we? I know that's pretty reasonable that Moses would say that, but they were 40 years of adversity in the wilderness. Now, we're going to talk about something a little difficult in adversity today. And biblical concepts are often resisted, even resented by our culture, because every culture, whether it's today in our culture or a thousand years ago in some other culture, there are always some things in the Bible that kind of the culture agrees with and some things that they go, ooh. Um, but the Bible is countercultural and countercultural. And because of our cultural biases, sometimes they slip into even the best of churches. Sometimes they slip into the hearts of even the best of Christians. So we need to study God's word and develop a biblical world view. Um, but as we do that, oftentimes initially there'll be certain concepts that just don't sit well. And that may be the case for you today. You may hear what I have to say and go, uh, well, pray, talk to God, study the Bible. What I am going to talk about is clearly stated throughout the Bible. It's what the Christian church has always believed. I'm not getting up here and making something up. But it has fallen out of favor with our current culture. And it is rarely mentioned in churches. And it's one of the reasons, only one, that some people experience adversity. You ready? You don't know if you're ready, do you? Why did the Israelites wander for 40 years in the wilderness until those adults died? Because they refused to trust God and obey Him and invade the promised land like He told them to. They refused 
to obey the voice of the Lord their God. And so as a nation, and that's what I want you to pay attention to in this first part, as a nation, they had a long, long wilderness experience, 40 years of adversity. Now, while 10 of the Israelite spies said, oh, we can't do it, let's not obey God, let's run away because they'll kill us, Caleb and Joshua said, come on, let's obey Let's obey God. Let's go. We can do this. God will do it. But when the nation wanders for 40 years in the wilderness, Caleb and Joshua have to go right with them. All the babies and children under 20, they had to go right with them. They grew up on manna. I don't think that was fun. 40 years in the wilderness. And they weren't the responsible ones. They weren't the ones that had rejected God. Moses explains in Deuteronomy 8 that their wilderness experience was God disciplining them as a nation. Just like a parent disciplines their child, God was disciplining the nation of Israel to do them good in the end. Do you know why Israel had to wait four centuries to inherit the promised land? Why didn't God just give the promised land to Abraham when he promised it to him? Why didn't when we saw last week Jacob coming from his father-in-law's house, Laban, into the promised land, why didn't God just give it to him then? What well, says in Genesis 15 that the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet complete. The inhabitants of the promised land were involved in many evil things. They, they had sex with temple prostitutes as part of their worship of their gods. They took children and sacrificed them to their gods. They enslaved people. They did other things. But they had not yet done enough evil for God to remove them and give their land to the descendants of Abraham Isaac and Jacob, like he had promised. So God disciplines the nation of Israel so it'll become wise and trust him. But God does not merely discipline the peoples in the promised land. He, des he destroys them. And it's complicated in the middle of something to know, are we being destroyed or are we being disciplined? Okay, that's not always clear. But whichever it is, Although we're all sinners and no one is completely innocent, whenever a nation or group of people is disciplined or destroyed, there are many children, babies, and adults who were not responsible. They were not the big transgressors. They're like Caleb and Joshua. They wanted to obey God, but they were part of the group. They suffer with it. So that happens throughout the Bible. It happens, obviously, throughout history. Um, everyone is part of various groups. You're part of a family. You may have been part of a family that was really beneficial to you and got you set up with, really, or you might have been one of really dysfunctional, really tough. You didn't make those decisions. You just grew up in that family. Everybody's part of a nation. What if you were born in Germany in 1920? How would it be when you're 25 at 1945? The whole nation's been destroyed. Millions and millions of Germans have died. But if you were born in America in 1920, how are you 25 years later in 1945? Well, your nation has become the most powerful in the history of the world, and you're set for decades of creating wealth and prosperity. Totally different. God did not immediately give the promised land to Abraham or to Jacob because it would take 400 years for the evil, the iniquity, to pile up and be complete. They hadn't yet exhausted God's patience with them. It says in the Bible that God is abounding in steadfast, patient and abounding, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, but eventually he intervenes. 
When he introduces himself to Moses through the burning bush, he tells him that he has seen the suffering of his people in Egypt, and now he's sending Moses to rescue them. God notices. God, when you do something to somebody, God knows. If you oppress a whole people, he especially knows. If people are clamoring because you've been treating them poorly, God knows. Egypt's going to be wiped out. Its crops, it's much of its livestock, its riches taken away, its army, and firstborn children of every family will die. In addition, the people who live in the promised land in Canaan, they're going to be destroyed because their sins and evil have accumulated to the point where God says, it's time, I, I got to intervene. Now, several centuries later, the Assyrians were the thugs of the ancient world. These people ruled by terrorism. They would impale entire cities just to strike fear in the hearts of everybody else they were ruling over. Everyone hated them, and God was going to destroy them, but he decided to give them a chance to repent. And so he sent the reluctant prophet Jonah to tell them. And Jonah goes to Nineveh begrudgingly, and they repent. Their destruction is postponed. And understandably, Jonah and the entire region really wanted these evil Assyrians to be destroyed. But when Jonah complained, God reminded him of all the babies and animals that were in Nineveh who would suffer right along with the Assyrians were they destroyed. They hadn't participated in those ghastly deeds. We read in 2 Chronicles, a passage many of you are familiar with, if my people who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. That's another phrase for their land is experiencing adversity and they need to repent. And although God said this to Solomon about people coming to the temple he built and praying there, I think there's a I think it's reasonable to believe this is a spiritual principle and if today the followers of Jesus will pray and be humble and repent, God forgives and heals the land. However, if a nation refuses to repent and does great evil, God will eventually either discipline or destroy it. It took 400 years for the people of the promised land to run out of God's patience. Now, among other things, they were involved in sexual sin and they sacrificed their children to their gods. What about America? For many people, sex has become merely entertainment. And yet, it's deeply scarring and taking a whole generation and helping them misunderstand love. And Americans have sacrificed somewhere between 45 and 60 million unborn babies. Now, certainly there's a tiny fraction of those uh, where the pregnancy was endangering the life of the mother, but a tiny fraction. So for the vast majority, what gods were those unborn children being sacrificed to? What god was important enough? Each and every one of those unborn babies is important to God, loved by him. Will God discipline and destroy us for our sins as a nation? Because when he does, it impacts everyone. And I am concerned for my grandchildren. We need to pray. 
We need to develop the habit of praying for our nation, for our leaders, and for revival. In addition, all of us who claim to be followers of Jesus, we need to repent of the sins in our lives. Now we're talking about adversity and today we need to talk about this particular area, not for the other messages, but there are many different reasons why Christians experience adversity and we all experience adversity. Sometimes it has nothing to do with sin in your life. God may be just developing endurance and Christ-like character like we said last week from James. God may be giving you a platform. You experience something awful, but you recover and then you're able to help other people who experience that awful thing. God may be just using adversity to close one door that looked attractive so you'll go through another door that he's going to open up. Lots of different things God uses adversity for. However, sometimes... The adversity we are experiencing is God disciplining disciplining us for some sin in our lives. And he wants us to repent, stop our involvement, and make him Lord of every area of our life. In Hebrews 12, the author writes, God is treating you as sons for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? All Christians get disciplined by our father. Followers of Jesus give in to temptation sometimes. However, Jesus has already received all of the punishment that our sins deserve. He did that on the cross. God doesn't punish the children he's adopted into his family, but he does discipline them with an idea of restoring them, of helping them, of getting them to see the light and repent and follow him. So for some of you, for many of you, much of today's message doesn't apply to you. Uh, You clearly understand the difference between good and evil, right and wrong, and although you are imperfect in sin, you're not continuing to be involved in some obvious, blatant sin. And if that's your situation, then your adversity probably doesn't have anything to do with your sin. Now remember, somewhere in the neighborhood of 9 or 10% of America has what we call a biblical worldview, and many of you do. And those people rarely go off the deep end um, in terms of getting involved in some things that are just really obvious and blatant. They do sometimes. There was some, some in the news next, this week we'll probably talk about next week. Um, but you may be one of those rare ones. You may be fooling the rest of us. You may be just, oh yeah, I've got a biblical worldview and you've got the answers, but you're actually involved in something you shouldn't be. So maybe this message then would be for you. Paul wrote, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Now, remember I said a few weeks ago that about 39% of America would say, I have had an experience with Jesus that is still important in my life today. 39%, but only 9% of biblical worldview. Now, that other 30% in between, some of them, just they do maintain um, the same view of good and evil as people with a, a biblical worldview. But many have accumulated for themselves teachers to suit their passions. For example, just talk about unmarried people who are involved in a church. In a church like ours where they believe the Bible's reliable and they're going to say, you know, you're only supposed to have sex in a marriage context. In people 18 to 29, over two-thirds every year, they're involved in a sexual relationship. And the adults older than that, it's not much better. 
These are people who claim to be followers of Jesus who are in a church like ours and are unmarried. Some sources say that 70% of American men and roughly half that of American women regularly look at pornography, objectifying the other gender, and uh, they say those statistics are not that much different in churches. Jesus said, whoever looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Let, let, me, let me try to explain this succinctly. I am a sinner. I do some things that I know are not good for me. I'm on a diet right now, but normally I eat too many brownies, okay? I know I'm not supposed to. I'm trying to keep that, this particular part light so you can get into it. Um, but I know I do some things that are not good for me. Is it reasonable to, th- probably everybody in this room has something like that, right? Okay. Is it reasonable to think that perhaps there are some things that I do that are not good for me that I don't realize it? Is that reasonable? Is it reasonable to think that there are some things that I do that are not good for the people even that I love around me, but I don't even realize it? See, God made us. Only God knows how we're designed to work well. He made me. He loves me. He died for me. He wants the best for me. He knows what is best for me. And when I disagree with what he's telling me, if he's my king, I do it anyway. I obey him anyway because I trust him more than I trust myself because I know I don't always think straight. That's one of the reasons we need a reliable scripture, Bible. The Apostle John writes, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. See, this, none of this is about, people always get confused. They say, oh, you're talking about earning salvation or works versus grace. No, not at all. You don't earn your salvation. No one is good enough to earn their salvation. We can only receive it by grace because of what Jesus did. But once you receive that, the Holy Spirit says here, the seed God's seed, that's the Holy Spirit, abides in you and he hates evil. And he hates it when you treat people in ways that are damaging or unloving, even if you don't see it. And so he brings you to repentance. Also, you admire Jesus and want to be like him, so you get rid of some of that stuff. Now, you'll notice I'm trying to give you most of the major authors in the New Testament because it always, I just can't believe how people don't see this is on throughout the New Testament. The Apostle Peter writes, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. The Apostle James writes, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. The Apostle Paul writes, Now the works of the flesh are evident. See if any of of this shoe fits. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And the do there is in the present tense, just like in 1 John when he's saying, people who are lovers of Jesus with the Holy Spirit and then the seed of God, they don't continue to do. It's present tense ongoing. They repent. They receive forgiveness. Are you experiencing adversity? I, you could be fooling me. I don't know if it's because of sin in your life. Sometimes when you experience adversity, God is yelling at you to repent. The escape from slavery, the exodus of God's people from Egypt is often used by Christians as a spiritual metaphor. 
uh, a spiritual metaphor of God rescuing us, rescuing me from slavery to sin. So to encourage my heart to never think that I've earned the many blessings of this very fruitful and productive country, of a family that loves me, of getting to be here and be with you, to help me completely avoid ever thinking that I earned that and to avoid things like spending too much of my income on my family or thinking that somebody else who may not have had nearly the opportunities I had, um, that they're in any way less than I am. Pretty much every week, as a metaphor, I recite Deuteronomy 8 to myself. And it's Moses, it's part, Deuteronomy is Moses' parting exhortation. He's about to die, and it's, he doesn't get to go into the promised land because he messed up. And, and he's about to die, and it's his parting exhortation to all those kids that were under 20 that grew up the past 40 years in the wilderness, and he's telling them, they're going to the promised land, now listen to me, this is what you need to remember. So I do this to myself every week pretty much, and I'd encourage you to join me just by closing your eyes and concentrating on God's admonition as a metaphor for you, but also as a metaphor for this rich country we have inherited and what might be happening in it. The words of Moses. All the commandment which I command you this day, you shall be careful to do. That you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. That he might humble you testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out upon you and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart As a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of springs and fountains flowing forth in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord for the good land he has given you. Take heed that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes which I command you this day, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built goodly houses and live in them and your herds and your flocks have multiplied and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up. And you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, 
who led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock and fed you in the wilderness with manna which your fathers did not know to humble you and to test you to do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God. For it is he who gives you power to get wealth and so confirms his covenant which he swore to your fathers as at this day. And if you forget the Lord your God, and go after other gods and serve them and worship them. I solemnly warn you this day that you shall surely perish. Like the nations the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would have mercy on our country. We ask that you would pour out your spirit all over this country or start here in this peninsula that we might have the privilege of seeing revival. We ask that you would speak to our leaders, that you would break through the barriers of so many people who think they've understood your gospel, but they haven't. Lord, use us, show us, teach us to pray regularly for people that don't know you yet. Teach us to pray for our nation and for our family and for our leaders. Lord, we ask that you would spare our, our children and our grandchildren, all those we love who will be here long after we're gone, and that you would work powerfully. And Lord, if there's someone here today who's been fooling all of us, but you've now told them they have some sin in their life they need to deal with, would you give them the power to do that, and the support, and the help? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And now, some parting words from Pastor Rick. Kind of a heavy topic today. Um, should be later next week. Uh, sometimes God speaks to you and you need somebody to pray with. Right around this corner, there's always people there at the prayer week. They'd love to pray with you. But also, if God's revealed something to you and you need... Um, to do serious business with him. Maybe we can't see it, but you know there's some sin in your life. He promises that, he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So go to him, confess, let him give you the power you need to get victory over that sin and to experience his grace. And now be filled with God's spirit that you might be his faithful and holy ambassador wherever you go, that everywhere you go, you might be a blessing May you pray for your neighbors. May you pray for our nation and our leaders. May you pray for this world. God bless you. Go in peace. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.